if we must grind up human flesh and bones in the industrial machine that we call modern America, then before God I assert that those who consume the coal and you and I who benefit from that service because we live in comfort, we owe protection to those men first and we owe the security for their families if they die. I say it, I voice it, I proclaim it, and I care not who in heaven or hell opposes it. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was John L. Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers of America and founding president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, testifying at the House Labor Committee hearing on coal labor practices. Moving from 1947 to today, let's talk about the latest potentially historic unionization effort at Amazon, plus the historic Supreme Court confirmation last week. So I've got some updates on state voting rights and redistricting, of course, the ongoing dynamics of both our economy and COVID, which are shaping this political moment. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, April 12th. And as we kick off, I need to actually share my first ever correction from a past 10 Minutes on Democracy podcast. Last week, I described the upcoming Alaska Congressional Special Election as the first to use ranked choice voting for a federal election. I was incorrect, and several of you reached out to catch me on that. In November 2018, Democrat Jared Golden won Maine's second congressional district election after trailing his Republican opponent in the initial tally of votes. The ranked choice voting that moved the third and fourth candidates, uh, independent candidates out, put him just ahead and he won that election. That followed the 2016 approval by Maine voters of ballot measure question five, when Maine became the first state to enact ranked choice voting for statewide elections for governor, state legislature, and Congress. So let's talk about some of what's been happening this last week. First, Justice Ketanji Brown's Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. She got three Republicans to cross the aisle to support her uh, historic confirmation. And while it won't change the ideological makeup of the court, it is historic in so many ways. She is the first black woman on the court, first public defender on the court. It's the first time ever the court Will not have had a white male majority. So even as we don't expect this to change the decisions in the near term, it is a real staunch signal of the changing dynamics of our population and of our politics. And her voice on the court, even if she's likely to largely be writing dissenting opinions in the short term, is one that many people are celebrating and looking to for the future. I wanted to take a step back from the historic moment of the other development this week, the unionization of Amazon, to just take a moment looking at the broader economy. We've seen how things are continuing to just heat up. U.S. inflation rose another 1.2% from February to March. That's the biggest month-to-month jump since back in 2005. And the consumer price index in March rose by 8.5% from a year ago, the fastest annual gain since December of 1981. This is driven by supply chain issues, robust consumer demand, more disruptions to global food and energy markets, the dynamics of the Russia-Ukraine war and what that's doing to supply chains and to future predictions. It also led to the fact that real worker earnings fell by almost another percent, 0.8% during the month as the cost of living outpaced otherwise strong pay gains. 
So it's just the continued pressure on our economy. People are overall doing well, but right at the brink, combined with the fact that also Philadelphia has now become the first major U.S. city to reinstate mask mandates this spring, citing a rise in COVID cases there. As overall in the country, COVID cases have risen to 36,000 per day. These backdrop dynamics are shaping the political moment, shaping the pressure on the legislative and the campaign rhetoric that we're seeing, but also shaping things like the Amazon unionization. So let's talk about that for a second. 40% of all online retail in the United States is accounted for by Amazon. And earlier this month, we had a historic breakthrough. Workers in a warehouse in Staten Island in New York voted for the first time ever to unionize at an Amazon location. There was a very high profile case back in Alabama that failed twice last year, but here you had just over 500 more voters, 22,654 voters voting for unionization compared to 2,100 voters, 2,131 voting against. It's a really big victory. You know, Amazon had an unbeaten streak of union busting and preventing unions from being created. And it's not over yet, even though the union has now been formed. Amazon's filing a challenge with the National Labor Relations Board, and they that could actually make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, depending on how long the appeals go. But that could take years. And so even as this moment and this unionization effort the fight will continue on it. It's also just a breakthrough moment. And many people are wondering, like, what will be the ripple effects from this moment? What's been really interesting is how you've seen actually support from both the left and the right for unionization, which is really, you know, quite uncommon. You've seen kind of democratic supports for unionization overall. They are calling it like kind of a rise of new worker rights. Biden has come out in support of Amazon workers. But there's been some interesting developments on the right where there's kind of a pushback against corporate power who they see as kind of not backing Republican interests anymore. This kind of realignment of the kind of anti-elite rhetoric from Trump's base and a sense that actually pushing back against the kind of offshoring of jobs to China versus keeping working class jobs in the United States may be another dance. So there's an interesting kind of pressure around unionization that is really just shifting the dynamics. People are quitting, as we know, in droves. There's wages are going up and there's not a lot of other choices. Really tight labor market, post-pandemic boom means that it is a moment we could see kind of this acceleration of unionization. And if that happens, it could really change the dynamics of both political power, lobbying activity, and fundamentally how people are paid in the years to come. So something that really to keep an eye on and how it ripples out the ties between the economy and our democracy. Last thing I want to talk about this week, kind of two pieces on this kind of state voting uh, updates. First is in Florida. I've talked about before the ongoing back and forth between Republicans, the fights over drawing the congressional map in Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis, who vetoed his own party's maps last month, and has been saying we should go even further. We should have a more aggressive gerrymander. This Republican state legislature has been pushing back. Well, this week they have just come back and said they're going to let the governor draft the new map rather than trying again themselves. And so it's really a consolidation of power behind DeSantis in Florida. It means we're likely to see a more uh, aggressive map coming out of Florida, which 
with a really close balance of power in the House could have real implications for the future control of the U.S. House of Representatives. One of the last big states where maps are waiting, and these few states that are left can determine the balance of power. The other piece that came out was the National Urban League's State of Black America. It's their annual report on kind of how, how are Black Americans doing. And they came out with a really just pointed critique. They said that warning of a, quote, a systemic effort to disenfranchise, delude, manipulate, and intimidate American voters. They're pointing out how state legislatures have been restricting voting access in districts, especially with large populations of Black Americans, Latinos, and Indigenous voters. The kind of targeted way that they're seeing to repress the right to vote, particularly trying to use this dynamic of tying density or population as a new rationale to reduce or restrict voting in certain places. Different code, because you cannot restrict the right to vote based on race. But we know that the most densely populated communities are those with very large populations of BIPOC folks. And so that kind of new attempt at a way to disenfranchise people. They also, uh, it's worth noting in their Equality Index, it's the other big piece of their annual State of Black America report. It measures the, estimates the share of the pie that Black Americans get compared to white Americans, economic status, health, education, civic engagement. And it shows it again being stagnant this year, not making any gains. So things to be watching for and to kind of continue to remind ourselves around the work that is to come. That's what I've got for this week's review of developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.